Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Definitive, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Definitive's head of America's oil analysts. The last few weeks, Jim and I have covered projects in the Americas, how developments in the oil industry affects the economies of the Americas, and several other great topics. If you're new to our podcast, I'd like to encourage you to go back and take a listen. But today we're going to discuss shipping and the movement of oil products around the Americas. So Jim, I know if you could go back and relive your college years over, you would definitely go to law school. (laughs) No, no, my friend, that's what we have you for. (laughs) So starting, starting in the U.S., there are a lot of market dynamics happening across the barrel. Um, today I'll focus mainly, I'll touch on a couple of those, but then focus on some of the crude pipeline issues that have been in the news. So the few of the movements that I don't have time to talk about, like naphtha export cargoes almost doubling between January and April, and then June being a bit over half of the Jan volumes. All these specifics can be seen on our flows page. Or U.S. products exports being cut by a third in June from the volume in January. Or the U.S. remains a consistent home for Russian fuel oil, which may be important for our next week's podcast, a little foreshadowing. However, it's the crude pipeline legal wranglings that seem to have the market's attention this week. U.S. District Court Judge James Boasberg has made three recent decisions on the Dakota Access Pipeline. On March 25th, he ruled the environmental impact statement required by the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, was inadequate for the Army Corps of Engineers to issue the permit for construction. So this is, of course, in retrospect, as the pipeline has been operating without incident for three years. Then on on July 6th, Judge Boasberg ruled the potential impact is too great and not reversible if there is an incident. Therefore, Dakota Access Pipeline should halt flowing on the pipeline within 30 days, which which will be August 5th. One thing to note, the environmental impact that uh, is being talked about is expected to take about 13 months. And three, uh, just the other day on July 8th, Energy Transfer's request for appeal of the judge's decision uh, was denied. So I've heard on the street from friends in Washington and some lawyer types like Corey that this shutdown decision will be very very difficult to enforce. Dakota Access LLC says it will lose $3 million a day, and the time to drain the pipeline will be three months, not just one month, at a cost of about $27 million dollars. The judge's comments, which I'll let you read on your own, on why he's making this decision, taste more like politics than law. So I'm not a lawyer, and I really don't want to wade into this legal mess, but there are some issues that I see as needing to be solved by the courts. Since NEPA's procedural requirements don't apply to the president, Congress, or federal courts, did President Trump have enough information to make an executive order to revive the Dakota Access Permit? I think we know how that one's going to go. Note, this legal action is stating that the Army Corps of Engineers 
didn't have the proper environmental study impact. The president doesn't formally need this study to make his decision. Two, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe are represented by Jan Hasselman and an organization called Earth Justice. The pipeline does not cross either the Standing Rock Reservation or the Cheyenne River Reservation, which if you're looking at a map, they straddle North and South Dakota about the middle of the state, east to west. About a mile or so up the river from the Standing Rock Reservation, the pipeline crosses a widening of the Missouri River called Lake Oahe. The tribes are claiming any potential leak will irreversibly damage their fishing on the lake. So you can see the quagmire that Judge Blasberg is in. Potential damage to a lifestyle and food source coming from an asset the tribes don't own versus the tribe's right to even make the claim. It's clear which way the judge feels, and this will undoubtedly set up years of legal review. The question is, while this review is happening, will the pipe be operating or not? Energy Transfer has scheduled deliveries for August. They believe the judge has overstepped his jurisdiction. Either way this goes, we can bet on a sloppy legal mess. The other and arguably more troubling is what sideline Keystone XL and Enbridge Line 5 and every other project that is to be built in the U.S., pipeline project, that is. In April, the District Court of Montana suspended the Army Corps of Engineers Nationwide Permit 12 program. This program authorizes dredge and fill activities for new pipeline projects. The suspension is in place until the Army Corps, quotes, completes an interagency consultation under the Endangered Species Act, unquote. I believe this has to do with the Army Corps not considering the effect of the pipeline on indigenous snake populations. So on Monday, July 6th, the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the program, and this is a streamlined permitting process for pipeline water crossings, except for the Keystone XL project. So what I find fascinating in all of this is where's the money coming from on the environmentalist side to fund these lawsuits? We know where the money's coming from on the pipeline side, but who's paying for the lawyers, analysts, and resources like electricity for this group to fight this battle? Perhaps that's a podcast for another day. You know, this is interesting and, and I have some feelings about all of this, but I'll keep those to myself. So um, I see Mexico is having some uh, unexpected tough times. Yeah. Mexico has seen remarkably consistent oil exports in 2020. And to give you some frame of reference, the U.S. takes about 60% of the Mexican oil exports, although in May it was closer to 80%. India and South Korea each take between 10 and 15%, with Spain consistently around 8%. Our listeners will recognize these markets as we regularly talk about the various outlets that have substantial cocoa capacity at the refineries. Also on the oil side, the FPSO Yumkak Nab in the Bay of Campeche was struck by the oil tanker Olympic Future on July 1st. I'm told a five-foot-long, three-inch-wide gash was cut into the FPSO. Production of about 64,000 barrels a day is suspended. And for those detailed geeks like me, production from the Maloub B wells has also been suspended. Repairs are happening as I speak. 
I haven't heard an estimated time uh, the FPSO will be back in service as Pemex is saying in the short term, whatever that means. Finally, on the oil side, just this week, the Mexican energy regulators told Talus Energy, a Houston-based production company, and Pemex, they have 120 days to figure out how to play nice and come up with a joint Zama oil production. Here's the problem. The Zama discovery happened on a block that Talos operates, and it sits right next to a block that Pemex operates. So you can see what's coming here, right? Talos released an independent reservoir study that detailed at least 60% of the Zama reservoir lies in their block. Pemex says the majority of the reservoir lies within their block. If that's not bad enough, Talos has already developed most of the front-end engineering for the platforms, so they've spent a whole bunch of money already. They plan on developing two fixed-leg platforms that sit in about 550 feet of water with initial production of about 150,000 barrels a day. And for you engineering types, that is the deepest ever installed offshore Mexico. However, both companies and President Obrador are still looking for first oil late in 2023. The production side in Mexico, the product side in Mexico is even more interesting. U.S. continues to supply about 95% of the Mexican refined product imports, although the shift in locations reveals some of the inner workings of the Mexican products market. In months past, about half of the product imports went to Tampico. Tampico is a Gulf of Mexico port town about 275 miles south of the Texas-Mexico border. However, this import has shifted. Now, about the only thing that goes to Tampico is octane additives. And the majority of the product flows now are into Tuxpan and Veracruz. Here's the significance of the product flow away from Tampico. Tampico has a product pipeline up to the Monterey market. New pipelines have recently come online from South Texas directly to the Monterey market. The fact that Tampico is not receiving gasoline and diesel flows suggests these pipelines are now up and running at full capacity. So now to look at the product flows into Tuxpan and Veracruz. Starting in about mid-June, Pemex was looking at being very near 100% capacity for the refineries, thanks to some help from Chinese financing and engineering. Then June 23rd, a 7.4 magnitude earthquake hit near the Salina Cruz refinery, and things just got worse from there. Salamanca refinery had some unplanned upsets, and the Tula refinery was just coming back from some planned crude unit work. The net result is Pemex is down about 900,000 barrels a day of refining capacity, and two of its biggest markets, Mexico City and Salina Cruz, are left short of product. For customers who use our interactive map feature, you can see there's a pipeline capacity from Tuxpan to Mexico City. The pipeline capacity out of the Veracruz port can serve both markets, Mexico City and Salina Cruz. Also, the Veracruz port has substantial rail capacity to serve both markets. So the large majority of the Pemex refining capacity looks to be back online next week. So, Corey, I understand that you're seeing some more aggressive moves by the U.S. towards the Maduro regime. Yeah, that's right, Jim. Um, there's certainly shipping-related issues going on with Venezuela. 
for a country with so much in the way of oil reserves and even refining capacity, those issues make it worse. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned that in addition to the gasoline tankers sent from Iran to Venezuela, that Iran was chartering jets to fly parts to Venezuela to help the country get its Cardone refineries catcracker back up and running. Venezuela actually has about 1.3 million barrels per day of refining capacity, but utilization for the past few months has effectively been zero. There's been efforts to bring facilities back online. For example, the 146,000 barrels per day El Palito refinery. But those efforts have largely been in vain. And you know how I told you when you run a refinery under 60% utilization for an extended period of time that you're looking for trouble? Well, Venezuela got just that. So after repairs, the catcracker at Cordon has been running and actually averaging between 15 and 30,000 barrels per day of gasoline output. The last Monday, a fire took it down, leaving any relief for the fuel shortages in the country with little hope. Now, I understand that this has um, supposedly been repaired, but uh, that was relatively recent, like yesterday when that news came out. So something I'll continue to monitor to see if that's really true. But also add to that the following. I mean, the last Iranian gasoline shipment just charged in Venezuela at El Polito on June 5th. Venezuela hasn't taken any additional shipments of fuel since. The U.S. has been actively sanctioning ships, owners, and companies involved in trading with Venezuela, and trading partners are at odds where Venezuela may come into play. Uh, most recently between Brujo Finance and Sea Energy Company, with 100,000 barrels of gasoline going up on auction by the U.S. government. Essentially, what we saw here was when a question came up whether Sea Energy would ship gasoline to Venezuela that was once carried by Brujo's ship, STS transfers and such, Brujo invoked arbitration rather than risking the possibility of U.S. sanction. OFAC has been removing sanctions previously placed on shippers and tankers involved in Venezuelan trade, where promises have been made to end such trading with the country. But now the U.S. is seemingly going to be a little bit more aggressive. So four tankers are suspected of carrying nearly 1.2 million barrels of Iranian gasoline for the benefit of Venezuela. And these four tankers are not only being watched by OFAC, a federal district court has issued a warrant to seize their cargoes. So, I mean, this represents a step change in the approach to the regime and something I'll continue to watch. Outside of that, I mentioned that with tank tops approaching and little place to export its oil, that crude oil production is down to between 300 to 350,000 barrels a day. The reality is production is probably closer to 250,000 barrels a day. And there are still some allowances for Venezuelan crude trade. Spain, Repsol, and Italy, E&I, have crude for products swap agreements. And it looks as if Venezuela, well, when I was preparing, they were going to receive a cargo from Italy, but I guess that has since landed under one of these agreements. Um, but, you know, where we've seen in the past year, year and a half or so, uh, only distillate coming from Italy and Spain, that's exactly what happened this time around. So... You know, prior to that, it was essentially all gasoline shipments, um, but this this particular shipment was diesel. All right. So what's going on in Latin America's largest economy? Well, first of all, President Bolsonaro has a coronavirus. And I understand that he has thus far only experienced mild symptoms, but I can't help but feel that his contracting of the virus will be of any help to public perceptions of how he addressed the pandemic. Uh, anyway, each week seems to have some positive developments for Brazil's oil industry. And as I've said here many times, Petrobras has shifted its focus to capturing a larger share of the global crude market 
and it has been supported by China. Now Petrobras is launching a tender to build its largest ever FPSO. The details aren't quite complete, but it looks as if Petrobras is considering this FPSO to have a production of 225,000 barrels a day. It will sit in the Buzios field and re represent the seventh such vessel producing there. And just a reminder, Buzios is a medium sweet crude with an API around 28 and a sulfur content of 0.31%. Uh, has a large middle and heavy disclip cut and has the IMO moles over additional restrictions around scrubbers and wastewater. Uh, which will have a price and demand impact on distillates and heavy sour crudes. I kind of see Bucios as an ever more important feedstock as we emerge from the pandemic, uh, but something I kind of need to chew on. Brazil, especially given its status and the number of infections, is certainly not, not immune to a second wave of the virus. But at least for now, even with increased refining runs, uh, it looks as if June was the bottom to refine products imports. For June, my flows model shows about 153,000 barrels a day of gasoline diesel, jet imports, but already for July, I have 155,000. So, you know, a couple thousand barrels per day more, but, uh, you know, we're the 10th of July, so that'll probably change. Um, and as typical, uh, most of Brazil's refined product imports are coming from the U.S. Mm. What else do you have for South America? Well, um, a couple episodes ago, and to some degree during our OPEC Plus webinar, I touched on Argentina and its goal to increase crude production there as to reach a half a million barrel per day of exports by 2023. Well, after the price collapse and less production going on in the country, we've actually seen some exports pick up there. Local refining takes up the bulk of Argentina's production. And even during the downturn with low refining runs, we've seen that generally stay the case. Uh, June departures hit a low of about 47,000 barrels per day. But for July, that number has increased to 116,000 barrels per day. That doesn't reach the high of 168,000 barrels per day set in April, but hey, it's not too shabby. So, Jim, what do we have brewing for next week? So today, Corey and I talked about a lot of the details of what's happening in the market, and even more importantly, the explanation of why it's happening. This level of detail starts to expose the underlying currents and trends that we'll see play out for the balance of the year. Next week, Corey and I will explore another major current, OPEC Plus's actions on America's oil. All right. Thanks, Jim. For now, have a great week, everyone.